Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm very excited to have Ken Burns back on the podcast. You'll know Ken Burns. Ken Burns, the most legendary history documentary maker on planet Earth. Many of us probably remember the US Civil War series that he made that we all watched and fell in love with. But he's obviously made dozens of other documentaries, Second World War, Vietnam, Ernest Hemingway. He's been on the podcast before. We talked about Ernest Hemingway uh, a year or two ago. But as you'll hear, it prompted me to go on a bit of an Ernest Hemingway reading binge, which I'm very grateful for. You know what, folks? It has improved my life. People are always casting about for things that improve their life. I think change your diet and exercise regime does your job, sure, your relationships. Reading Hemingway improved my life. There you go. Thank you, Ken Burns, for that. And thank you, Ken Burns, for his latest documentary series on Benjamin Franklin, the scientist, the inventor, the writer, the diplomat, the signer of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. The man was a polymath. He was a legend. This conversation with Ken really reminded me that before the revolution, he was the only American that the rest of the world ever heard of. He was a brilliant scientist, described as the Isaac Newton of his time. And then he went on to become a founding father. I mean, that's unbelievable. So much packed into one life. Absolutely extraordinary. I think you'll agree. When you listen to this podcast and watch his two-part documentary premiering on PBS on April 4th and 5th this year, it'll be on, for those of you listening in the UK, it'll be on a little bit later here in the UK as well. Ken is not only someone who has inspired me in my career, it's been a huge honour to get to know him now through these podcasts, and I find him even more electrifying and inspiring as I've got to know him better. So I have to pinch myself. I have to go back to that slightly geeky kid who confused his friends in his early teens by asking his mum and dad to watch... I've never what box sets back then. I think it might have been huge plastic containers of VHS tapes. I'm not sure. Anyway, I rented them from the video rental store down the road. I hid them so that my friends wouldn't see. I took them home and I binge-watched all of them. I binge-watched before it was fashionable, folks. I binge-watched Ken Burns. I should get that on a T-shirt. Binge-watching Ken Burns since before binge-watching was a thing. Anyway. And so I think that young kid would be pretty excited if he knew that his older self would be putting questions to Ken Burns and chatting about history and how to make it accessible to people all over the world. I love my job, folks, and thank you very much to you all for allowing me to do it. If you wish to make it even easier to do my job, please head over to History Hit TV. It's our digital history channel. It's like Netflix, but just for history. It's available on smart TVs, on phones, on computers, on everywhere where the internet is available. You just follow the link in the information of this podcast. You click on that link, you get two weeks free, very, very small subscription, and you're in. That's it. You're watching the world's best history channel. One inspired 
by the brilliant Ken Burns. So here's the man himself. Enjoy. Ken, great to have you back on the show. It's great to be with you, Dan. Listen, after the last one, you made me go and read loads of Hemingway. And I changed my life. I'm a massive Hemingway fan now because of you. I have a rotating set of books at my foot of my bed, not at my nightstand. And the only constant are the short stories of Ernest Hemingway. Because if before you fall asleep, you've got 10 or 20 minutes to just devote to a pure, almost perfect work of art, there's none better. Yeah, I agree. And I now understand why everyone talks about this. Like He redefines... The English language. I mean, I probably should have done this before I talked to you last time about Ernest Hemingway. But anyway, it's like it's extraordinarily important, I think, that you give that 19th century, that kind of verbiose 19th century novel writing to his kind of modern style. It's bonkers. Well, you know, there's a famous thing that he said that the shortest novel on record is six words. And that is baby shoes for sale, never worn. There's a whole story there. Yeah. Tonight, you can read The Snows of Kilimanjaro in bed when you can't sleep. So listen, Ken, let's talk about Franklin. First of all, by the way, this machine that you oversee that pumps out these unbelievable documentaries, I mean, I've been watching hours of Franklin in the last few days. Each one of them is an epic task. And tell me, I guess, a bit more about the team that you preside over. Are you across all of these in minute detail? Yes, it's not a machine. It's sort of a family business. It's kind of a cottage industry here in which we've got three, three and a half, four teams, and I'm the head of each of the teams. And we're working staggered on at least one, sometimes two projects, which seems like there's this huge output. But there's a, an economy of scale to be doing it this way. Certainly, I'm working on a big, massive series on the history of the American Revolution. So Franklin and that overlaps are people talking heads that we used in Franklin that will repeat again or other bites from their interviews in the American Revolution. But even a disparate project like Muhammad Ali, the last film, or Ernest Hemingway serve the purposes of Franklin. They help us keep going. And so in some cases like Franklin, my co-producer, David Schmidt, hasn't been doing this for that long. So I did almost all the interviews on something like Hemingway. I just did a handful of interviews because my co-producers and co-directors, Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein, are really good interviewers. So I never miss an important editing screening. I have the final word, a script meeting, that sort of stuff. But I don't have to be there and shoot every interview. I don't have to shoot every archive, that sort of stuff. And the older I get, I'm 68, I'm just running out of time. So I'm getting greedy, right? The more projects you want to work on, because I could be given a thousand years to live, which I won't. And I won't run out of topics in American history. Well, I'm very glad to hear that because I'm obviously a keen customer for your American history output. So keep going, is all I can say. How do we come down on Franklin? Has he been a founding father that's always fascinated you? I don't say always. I think like for most people, he's a founding father that eludes us. You know, he's got this reputation that precedes his political activity, which is he is arguably the Isaac Newton of the 18th century. He's the tamer and the describer of lightning. And it falls to us as school kids to learn it that the lightning strikes the kite. It never happens. That's not what's required. It's a much more complicated thing. But all of the things that we use today 
positive, negative, battery, charge, conductor. These are all Franklin terms. So he was the most famous American on earth before he had a political bone in his body, other than a almost lifelong commitment to civic engagement. He's on our $100 bill. We call it a Benjamin. That's the sign of kind of making it, is lots of Benjamins. And, you know, if you make serious Benjamins, that's making, you know, in the classic American over emphasis on money and the acquisition of stuff, which de Tocqueville warned us about and we never listened. But the assumption is that Franklin's example is just as this upwardly striver guy who makes it. And he held all of his vengeance, including the lightning rod, a byproduct of his electricity without patent his improvements on the stove, bifocals, catheters, all of these things that he did, which were improved, he held without patent. He was successful. He did retire, but he is two things. He's a guy who is interested in self-advancement, pulling her up by the bootstrap. So he attracts a certain amount of people generation after generation, but they forget that this is also tethered to a kind of civic responsibility that he perceives from the very, very beginning of his life. And so he's poking fun at pretensions, but he's also joining together with people to have civil discourse and to pay back to the community. So he's got the first non-sectarian college in the United States, University of Pennsylvania. He starts a free lending library, the first philosophical society. He's creating in Philadelphia volunteer fire departments and police forces, and he's doing any number of civic improvements, and he's brought into a civic a political existence. A reporter asked me, what would he think of social media today? He'd be totally confused. I said, what are you talking about? He invented social media. He was a printer. He was a publisher. He was a postmaster. He controlled everything coming and going. He's much older than the other, quote, founding fathers. His son is older than Thomas Jefferson. His son is older than Patrick Henry. I think his son is older than John Adams. But he is the first to perceive decades before the revolution of what it might mean to be an American to unite the fortunes of the disparate 13 colonies from Georgia in the south to my state where I am of New Hampshire in the north. And it's too radical for people then. But by the time the revolution comes, they're borrowing his slogan from decades before, join or die with an image of a segmented snake, meaning you can't do this alone. It isn't just I, it's got to be we or us the United States. So he's the guy who sees beyond the horizon. It's an amazing life. And I think if you think about all the things he did from being a printer, the greatest American stylist in terms of writing of the 18th century, our first humorous of any serious note. He's also our greatest diplomat, our greatest scientist, the world's greatest scientist for that century. He's a politician. He's an envoy. He's the greatest diplomat in American history by far. He's one of the architects of the Declaration of Independence. He doesn't write it, but he edits it, thank God, in good ways. And then he comes back and crafts after the diplomatic coups of the French and the Treaty of Paris, uh, settling the Revolutionary War. He comes back and helps forge the albeit tragic compromises that create the United States. Tragic insofar as nobody's addressing slavery, and he's been a, an enslaver of human beings too, and printing ads to that thing. But he forges the compromises that ensure the South remains there by counting their black slaves as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of representation, no other rights. But then in the ever-evolving Franklin, he's his own best invention, 
He's an abolitionist at the end, and he introduces the first resolution against slavery in the new government of the United States. The government he's helped to create, the Constitution he's helped to create, the war he's won, and the declaration he's helped edit, in addition to being all those other things. And then you just shake your head and go, wow. And he's itemizing his flaws all his life. He's balancing things out. He's Socratic. He's toughest on himself, and then he's tough on the rest of us. It's a hugely wonderful example, I think, particularly today when we're all so divided, everything's so binary. He knew that you could be for self, but you had to bind that back to a kind of civic responsibility. That's his huge contribution. And I think we miss it. You know, it whizzes past us. Kids get taught about him and then you have to really say, no, wait a second, who is this person? Well, in the great tradition of wonderful storytellers and filmmakers and artists, like when you watch Hamilton, you come away convinced that Hamilton's the most important person who's ever lived. I came away from your gigantic documentary series convinced that Franklin was the most important human being in the history of the world. You always gave us a great praise there, but can we break down some more of these examples, which I think will surprise people, of the things that he did and achieved? First of all, ignoring his role in the American Revolution to start with, he was described as the Newton of his era. He was the first North American to be given a most prestigious award by the... The Copley Medal. Yeah. And that followed a career in printing press. How would you describe his newspaper? I mean, it's the first of its kind in North America, really. Well, he's apprenticed to his brother in Boston. He's an indentured servant to his brother James in Boston. They're an unusual independent newspaper in that they're not following the dictates of the dominant religious group that controls the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Mather family, particularly the patriarch Cotton Mather. And so they're writing sort of stuff. His brother James is in prison for a while, but under pseudonyms, Benjamin is submitting wonderful things that are poking fun at pretensions and all of this sort of stuff. And he's discovered or he he has to admit that he's done this and it causes some jealousy. He runs away, breaks his indentured servitude and goes to Philadelphia and he apprentices and stuff. He goes to London. He comes back. He starts a business with a partner. He ends up being alone. He makes a fortune. He is able to retire early and to involve himself in not only these civic things that is important as he's an up-and-coming businessman, but also to scientific interests that he has. And he does make Newtonian-level discoveries with regard to electricity and then a practical, utile, life-saving invention, the lightning rod. Doesn't seem like much, but thousands of people are dying a year from lightning. And he's saving lives. He's improving on a German immigrant stove. He does the bifocal. All these different things he's doing and holding without patent, which is interesting because as he's held up as an example of American striving, that implies get what you can. He's getting what he can and then he's sharing the wealth. It's just improbable. And nobody's whispered the United States yet. Nobody said there's issues with the mothership in England. And interestingly, just on the kind of literary and media side, you make such a convincing case that he kind of invents that kind of homespun American wisdom that we now associate with your great country that gives us Mark Twain and, in fact, Hemingway, I guess, as well. But his aphorisms and all that, that is Franklin. 
That's Franklin. But let's give credit where credit is due. He's stealing freely, you know, from British papers, the Bickerstaff papers and things like that. The Almanac is a common thing. He's taking some of these humorous jokes and he's making them funnier, or at least he's making them funnier for an American audience. And so he does develop what will become Mark Twain's sense of humor. As somebody said, he spoke with the bark on about Twain and about Lincoln. You know, they spoke the way ordinary people could understand what you were talking about. So Franklin had this wonderful thing a century before. He's a great writer. And remember, there's a scholar, Joyce Chaplin, who reminds us that if you're in the printing business, you're setting type upside down and backwards, which means you kind of develop a hyper-literacy. And if you're this curious, omnivorous kid, as he was, who only had two years of formal schooling, young, as the scholar H.W. Brand says in the film, he doesn't know what he doesn't have to know, so he presumes he has to know everything. And he does. And he's the first one to chart the Gulf Stream and explain to mariners why it is it takes longer to go this way than that way, why it's warm, all of these wonderful practical things that help help other human beings. I just think you cannot say enough about that period. And then the experiments in lightning, he invents this wonderful musical instrument called an harmonica, which he just looks at at a demonstration in Cambridge, England and says, wait a second, why is the guy rubbing glasses to make this parlor sound? Let me make a thing. And composers in Europe, ones we've heard about, wrote things to his harmonica. And he's known for being on the $100 bear. Yeah, we'll get to that. You listen to Dan Snow's history. I've got Ken Burns on. Again, exciting. More coming up. Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr Kat Jarman, and my co-host Matt Lewis for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. 
And if you're giving an aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get to his going for retirement, which is disturbingly around about the age I am now. He has time for his science, which you mentioned, but also his ideas around a confederation, we could call it. So looking at the Iroquois, starting to imagine America, and then being able to do something like that by becoming postmaster as well. So he's, his hand is on the tiller here. His hand is on everything. And that's what's so great. So he does begin to perceive, because of the postmaster job, causes him to travel, what people in northern New England like and what people in the South like. And he's beginning to understand the differences, but the things they hold in common. And so he's able to capture that. He owns newspapers. He's communicating. He's the postmaster. He's printing currency. He's printing government stuff. So he's very much aware of what's going on. I mean, he's controlling social media. That's a really important part of who he is. And he's beginning to perceive well before, decades before the revolution, that what we want to do, ironically, he borrows it from the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois Confederation's idea that we can adjudicate the differences between various tribes in this way without going to war. And so he suggests that they are to do that, the Albany plan of action. He drew a picture of a segmented snake with the phrase, join or die. And everybody said, whoa, this is way too radical. But by the time the revolution happened, they adopted that image and that slogan, join or die. And it was revolutionary for everybody else. And it was at least two decades old for him. And so you are dealing with not just the classic polymath, you're dealing with somebody who is outsized. I mean, he's the only American that anybody on earth knows. They don't even know where America is. They don't know where Philadelphia or Pennsylvania is, but they've heard of Dr. Franklin, the modern Prometheus, the tamer of lightning. I mean, before him, it was often easy to get a letter to and from London if you're on the eastern seaboard there, if you're in the Georgias or the Carolinas, yeah. Let's do the Georgia, New Hampshire example. Dan, you know, so you're in Savannah, Georgia. You want to write a letter to your friend in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. That goes through London, right? Until Benjamin Franklin. And so all of a sudden, if you've cut out the middleman in just a simple act of communication, then you can extrapolate from that, right? Do we need the middleman who seems distant and far away. And while they protected us during the French and Indian War that became a global war, the Seven Years' War, the British coffers were depleted. And so there was obviously one source that you could help, you know, increase the revenues. And that was by taxing things for those colonists there. And they're going, wait, wait, we don't have any representation. We don't have any say in this. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, rhetorical stuff rising on each level. And Franklin's there, by the way, trying to make it all right. 
He's trying to say, no, 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 let me represent this. Well, let's calm the passions. He felt himself a Briton. He lived in London for the better part of 20 years, leaving his wife who didn't want to travel behind. And if she had come, we would probably not know much besides the scientific stuff. He just loved England. He loved London. There was more in just a couple of coffee houses, a few blocks than anything in the colonies. But his attempt to reconcile the difference and a bad political error that he made got himself in so much trouble that he was brought before the Privy Council in the cockpit at Whitehall and excoriated for an hour by an ambitious prosecutor named Alexander Wedderburn, who just yelled at him and crowd was jeering. And as one of the scholars in the film said, he walked into Britain and left an American. And he got radicalized by, it was his blunder. He had privately shared letters of a friend of his, a Massachusetts Bay colony politician, thinking that if the opprobrium went to him, it might cool passions in London and in the colonies, and it did neither. And when it was found that this agent of Pennsylvania and several other colonies had been the person he felt compelled to admit that he had leaked the letters, then he became, how could a postmaster have done such a dastardly deed? How could a writer, how could a diplomat? And so he was excoriated, and all of a sudden you have an old man whose game is not revolution beginning to side. Meanwhile, he's groomed his son to be what he wanted to be. He's appointed the royal governor of New Jersey, and that's it. His best friend, his son, William, becomes his enemy. It is a tragic internal story, not just the leaving of the wife. His loss of his son and the son's attempt to repair after the revolution and him refusing to do this, taking his own illegitimate son, his grandson, and keeping him. And he, William, was illegitimate himself. I mean, it's just, you cannot make this up. Hollywood, they would say, wait, in one person, uh uh-uh. I agree. And let's come to the war itself, because right at the beginning of the show, you claim that he pretty much did more than anybody else to bring about victory. Yeah. And then I was like, what is going on a minute? Think of, of course, of Washington, and we think of... And then actually, you completely persuade me. I mean, his fingerprints are all over. Even as an older man, away from the battlefield, he is essential in that victory. Let's just dissect that very, very simply. You know, the hero for Americans to this day, Franklin is not number two. And it was clearly at the time, Washington and Franklin, and some put Franklin higher and some put Washington higher, but it was just the two of them and then everybody else. And George Washington had the hugely impossible task of leading an army against the greatest military power on earth, right? Certainly the greatest navy on earth, if not the greatest military power on earth that has tens of thousands of troops in the colonies trying to put down this rebellion. So Washington's task is really difficult. He knows he cannot sort of win, but he can't lose. So he's always doing tactful retreats, right? There are some periodic victories, one of which he had nothing to do with. It's Saratoga, which convinces the French that the Americans might actually pull this out. And Franklin over in Paris as the envoy trying to negotiate a treaty is artfully manipulating even the bad news and the victories into huge, huge accomplishments. So he's wonderful there. He's beloved in the French court because he's got a light touch. But the key moment is at Yorktown. And there is George Washington Cornwallis is embedded in the town of Yorktown with his several thousand troops. Washington has several thousand Continental Army men that are supplied and armed by the French. Thank you, Dr. Franklin. And there are also several thousand French troops. Thank you, Dr. Franklin there. And Cornwallis has one option, which is to escape by sea, go back to New York and regroup. But there's a French fleet outside of Yorktown. Thank you, Dr. Franklin. 
And he's going nowhere and he has only one course, which is to surrender. So you can easily say, no Franklin, no us, meaning the U.S., right? No U.S., no us. That's his diplomatic skills, which we didn't even know he particularly had beforehand. And then in terms of the construction of a kind of literary framework for the U.S. Revolution, which we all come to associate with the birth of America, he's all over that as well. As you say, he's editing the Declaration of Independence. Really, it's Thomas Jefferson's beautiful, beautiful document. Yeah, I mean, and most of it is a, a set of complaints about King George III, but the opening and the closing are among the most sterling American prose that we have, you know, only bettered by a few speeches and sentences of Abraham Lincoln. It's really quite beautiful. And the second sentence is, to me as an American, the second most important sentence in the English language, the first being, I love you. The second sentence begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson had distilled a century of enlightenment thinking, but he's part of a committee, and Franklin's on that committee. And Jefferson had first proposed, we hold these truths to be sacred. And Franklin goes, time out. We're in the enlightenment here. You know, these aren't sacred. These are to be inevitable, like the sun rising. This is based on science and reason and all of that. And his just slight changes are so felicitous as to make the document even more powerful. And the hypocrisies embedded in it. Jefferson owns hundreds of human beings in his lifetime. And he's saying, here's something that all men are created equal. But the poetic vagueness of the language has pulled Americans through. Lincoln does the 2.0 with the Gettysburg Address saying, we really do mean that all men are created equal. We're proving it right now with the sword. But it's wonderful. And then he comes back after he's negotiated with the French and then negotiated the Treaty of Paris, which creates the United States or allows the United States of America to then be created. He forges the some Sometimes tragic compromises that made up the Constitution of the United States that permitted all of those disparate colonies from New Hampshire to Georgia to join together. But then he's an abolitionist. At the end, all his life he's wondered, even as a young man, debating on whether the presence of slavery adds or subtracts from the morals of a people. He started a school for black children and is stunned to find out that they're equally adept as white kids. And then he comes around to realizing that his own ownership of a handful of household slaves, and by saying the word handful, I'm not letting him off the hook. If you've got three slaves or 300 slaves, it's bad, right? You know, it's like murdering three people or 300 people. It's bad, right? And so he becomes the president of an abolitionist society and proposes the first resolution offered to the United States government to end slavery. I mean, this is a lifetime of the arc of the 18th century. He's born in 1706 and he dies in 1790. I mean, I was flabbergasted. And we don't make films, Dan, to tell you what we already know. We make films to discover. So we're sharing with you the enthusiasm, the excitement of our process of discovery. Well, mission accomplished. And in terms of that discovery, there's a moment in one episode where he talks about his preference for fair-skinned people. He thinks he's more attracted to white-skinned people. And he said, as everybody is, or maybe that's just me. Like, as a filmmaker, it seems to me you, there's plenty of him to work with here. 
Yeah, I think that this is it. He is a deeply prejudiced white man of his time. He actually is romanticizing. He says the lovely white and the red. He doesn't like the swarthy, believe it or not, German immigrants are coming in there. He dismisses them with a non-Aryan kind of, you know, Hitler is going to two centuries later sort of say, no, 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 you want, we're the pure whites, but he sees them as swarthy and not English and not the Native Americans who he romanticizes, but is perfectly happy to dispossess them of their properties and work on land deals in England, hoping that the king or somebody will grant him a charter to lands beyond Pennsylvania that he can make a fortune on, as George Washington did, as many people did. But he's questioning it all the time. I love the self-discovery. He makes up a set of virtues, 12 of them that he tries to abide by, sets up a chart. And then some friend points out as he's proudly showing this thing, he says, haven't you forgotten a 13th, which is humility? And Franklin goes, oh God, you're right. You know, you're absolutely right. And I, if I did well with humility, I'd probably brag about it, which would be so prideful. He's just irresistible to us. And I presume he was irresistible to just about everybody back then. I mean, when he came back from England, people were very suspicious. The revolution had begun and they didn't know where he was. He'd been working to forge compromises and all of a sudden he, now he says he's for us. Maybe he's a spy. But then a series of actions that he takes so demonstrates his commitment as an old man to this young man's game, revolution. And let's remember our civil war, of which I've done a big, massive 12 hour series on, was not a civil war, it was a sectional war. But our revolution was a civil war. In any given place, there were at least 20 to 25% of the people who were loyal to the British crown. And the atrocities against the loyalists and by the loyalists were tremendous. After William, his son, was deposed, the last royal governor standing, and eventually went to jail because he wouldn't stop his pro-crown activities, he was finally let out of jail and presumed that he would get on the next ship to London. And he didn't. He stayed and formed a terrorist organization that killed patriots. Not that there weren't lots of patriot organizations that killed loyalists. It's a pretty stunning thing. I'm working on a big series on the American Revolution right now, which I hope to sort of do deeper dives on a lot of the things I've just been talking about. It's so fascinating to finally not have a sense of this period in both the investigation of Franklin and in the American Revolution that sounds like my third grade history textbook. You know, it's deeper and we're seeing it from different points of view. Loyalists will have a voice. Those in Britain will have a voice. British soldiers will have a voice. Native Americans trying to figure out which side to join will have a voice. Freed blacks and enslaved people trying to figure out which side to be with. You know, at one point, the British very shrewdly suggested that you come to, over to our side and you'll be freed afterwards. And that's what enrages a lot of the Southern planters. It galvanizes their response to it. What? Our most valuable thing that we own? You're going to take that away from us? Us? Oh no, I'm now redoubling my revolutionary spirit. But there was a huge human cry born in the Enlightenment, born in the age of discovery and exploration of these universal human rights. They've been articulated first in Britain and in, in the Scottish Enlightenment, Hume and Locke, life, liberty, and property. I mean, people are thinking about these things. And this is the first practical application in a governmental form of those ideas, however flawed they were, however many asterisks we attached to the experiment because we permitted the perpetuation of chattel slavery in a country that had just proclaimed to the world that all men were created equal.
Ken, I cannot wait to see the next one, your American revolutionary one that is coming up in a few years' time. It sounds like you're going to go to town on that one. I hope so. I hope that our friends on the other side of the pond will be equally curious about that because we want to give voice. It isn't just these noble, sturdy townsmen on the Lexington Green firing at the overwhelming forces of the British troops. It's a much more complicated and therefore, to me, much more interesting story. Sure is. And if you're nice about those Howe brothers, I'm going to come over there and change the script myself. Those guys, <laughs> absolute disgrace. I mean, how did they let Washington get out of Manhattan, let alone New Jersey? Anyway, another podcast. We're going to talk about another podcast. Um, Ken, how can people watch The Franklin Show? Well, The Franklin Show will be on PBS in the United States on April 4th and 5th and then available on all its streaming platforms. But then, of course, it's got a UK component and usually my stuff ends up on the British accessible PBS station pretty quickly. You know, like I've even had in in times past pre-COVID ended up on junkets the second the broadcast is over in England to talk about the imminent broadcast of that. So I think it'll be available on the DVDs and the Blu-rays and all all of that, believe it or not, are still being produced for my stuff. People want to hold them in their hands. Gertrude Stein said of her hometown of Oakland, California, there's no there there. You're sitting with a whole bunch of books behind you. I really love the idea that there's tangible things. It's not just a file on a computer. Those are real books that you can pick up and hold. That's great. Incredible. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks. You've met in the wrong episode. Congratulations. Well done, you. I hope you're not fast asleep. If you did fancy supporting everything we do here at History Hit, we'd love it if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Thank you very much indeed. That really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please don't ever do that. It can seem like a small thing, but actually it's kind of a big deal for us. So I really appreciate it. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>